2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will represent or will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day for our light and momentary affliction, which is only for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at those things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then we go into chapter five, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, it's eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word today. God, I am amazed at how it is so relevant. It speaks to every situation in life. And I pray, Lord, that it would speak to everyone in this room today. Lord, I know there are people here today that are struggling, that are hurting. There's some whose bodies are racked with pain and discomfort. Some, Lord, who really feel what Paul said when he said, we groan in this earthly tent. But I pray, God, that you would give them great hope and great assurance. I pray, God, that you would challenge our faith and our theology today. Make us the men and women of God that you've called us to be. And I pray, God, for your anointing, because in my strength, it, it is not possible that I could rightly divide and appropriately proclaim your word. But with your anointing that is undeserved and unearned, but desperately needed, I can do just that. So I pray, God, that you would help me to speak with clarity and simplicity and let me speak the truth of your word today. And may it encourage the hearts of everyone in this room, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this section of 2 Corinthians, 
um, Paul returns to the theme of, of hope. Um, last week, we talked about mercy, and Paul challenges us to respond appropriately to God's mercy. But now he comes back to this theme, the theme of hope, hope that we can have despite the challenges that we all face. This theme of hope was first seen in chapter 3. In verse number 12, Paul said in chapter 3, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Paul said, I, I'm not ashamed of this truth. I'm going to speak it boldly. Hope was an essential part of Paul's life and his ministry. And hope must also be an essential part of our lives and our ministry. And what's interesting is, and, and I love this, we don't many times, and I've preached it many times, I've just lifted these verses out and preached them because they preach well. They're good, good principles. But inside the context, this is even more powerful. You see, Paul is responding to criticism, as we've talked about over the last several weeks, that he is receiving from the Corinthians, but especially from false apostles that are living in Corinth. They are saying to Paul, Paul, you're not really an apostle. You're not really the real deal. You're deceptive. You're not all that eloquent. You're pretty impress unimpressive. You really could not be an apostle sent from God. Up to this point, Paul has vehemently defended his ministry that was under attack and he's done so by talking about some of the experiences these, that he's had, some of the heavenly encounters and realities that he has experienced that he thinks should say to them, I'm not an ordinary man, I've had an encounter with Christ. Paul talks about entering the heavenly throne room in chapter 2, the triumphal procession. We talked about that Hebrew word markava, where he went into the presence of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.17, when I speak, I know that I'm speaking in God's presence. He's listening. This is important and God is watching. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, how we all can see the glory of God as in a, a mirror. And Paul talks about how he himself experienced that on the Damascus Road, that heavenly vision and the glory of God that transformed his life. So Paul has been defending his apostolic ministry by talking about his experiences. But the problem is that Paul's body, and I'm being serious now, his physical body does not manifest the glory of God in any tangible way. If you think that's crazy and you've never heard it, this was part of the critique that the Corinthians and the false apostles were leveling at him. In 2 Corinthians 10, in verse 10, Paul said, his letters, they say, speaking of Paul, are weighty and powerful, but Paul's bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. In other words, what they were saying about Paul is, yeah, he's a pretty good writer, and they're pretty persuasive, but when you hear him speak, he's not that impressive. And when you look at his physical body, He's just a wee little guy. He's beaten up. He's, he's not strong. He certainly doesn't look like the face of the glory of God. There was a Jewish tradition that said anytime one ascends into the presence of God, that 
that they become invincible. And they took that tradition from Moses who went into the, the mountain and encountered the presence of God. And he came down with the glory of God shining all over his face. Moses needed a veil. So why didn't Paul need a veil? If he was Mr. Apostle, if he was Mr. Great Man of God, why didn't he at least need a veil? Why does the glory not shine off of Paul's face? Why is his body so racked with struggle and trial? Why will he later say, God, I have this thorn in my flesh. Please remove it. Why is the glory of Paul so different if he is truly an apostle? And so Paul is addressing that critique. His body is weak. It is frail. It is emaciated. And this is the backdrop to his defense and his teaching. Now, Paul is going to emphasize here that there is a simultaneous process that takes place in our bodies where our bodies are destroyed, but there is a reconstruction taking place of that body, a process that will culminate in the parousia, the coming of Christ. And Paul is saying in that moment, mortal, weak, will put on immortal and powerful there is this process taking place, and when it all comes to an end, we will all stand in our bodies before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will explain what we have done in our bodies. Now, I say all of that to make this point really clear on purpose. The earthly body is actually the link that ties this whole section together. It's about how we live our lives in between times, the stage between when our bodies are weak and frail and emaciated and in pain and deteriorating in between that time and when we receive our new body at the coming of Christ. How many believe we're going to receive a new body when he returns? It's how we live in between. That's what this text is all about. And during this time, testing is kind of a secondary thing. Our endurance is tested. Our theology is tested. When we get sick and we don't get healed, our, our theology is tested. God's faithfulness or our faithfulness in light of God's faithfulness, our confidence in him, even our surrender to him, all of those are tested in between times. So let's look at this text real quickly in about 17 or 18 minutes with five points. How many feel really good about this sermon so far? Let's look at this text through the lens of the physical body, because that's what it's about. I, I'm not twisting this. That's what it's about. In fact, if we don't teach it this way, we are twisting it. That is what this is about. Paul is being told you could not be an apostle because your body is too weak and frail. And Paul is answering that. And then we will apply that to our lives. Number one, the work that God accomplishes through us in our earthly bodies is clearly a result of God's strength and power and not our own. Look at verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not for us. We have this treasure. What is the treasure Paul is talking about? He's just explained it earlier in this chapter. It's the revelation of the glory of God. Paul has experienced God's glory. He has seen him. He has encountered him. And Paul says, I house that revelation, that glory of God that I saw in the face of Jesus Christ that happened on the road to Damascus, that happened when I was taken into the presence of God, that happens when we all behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. Paul said, I have that revelation and I keep it inside this jar of clay, this clay pot. 
That's why some people say it's not original to me, but Christians are all cracked pots, right? <laughs> we are jars of clay. George Guthrie said, in other words, to grasp the gospel and personally come to know the God of glory. To have one's blinded mind cleared to understand and one's veiled heart uncovered is of inestimable value. To see the glory of God while we are yet in this jar of clay is so rich and so valuable. The revelation, the treasure comes into this jar of clay. Jars of clay were the most common of vessels in the ancient East. They were fragile, they were easily broken, they were ordinary, they were transitory, and they were easily disposed of. But God's incredible power invades these jars of clay, pitiful as they are, our frail and weak bodies. And Paul said, what God does through me is not because of me, it's because I have this treasure in this jar of clay. It is a jar of clay, but it's not just any ordinary jar of clay. We are jars of clay that God has formed. God has made us. As a matter of fact, the word formed in the Hebrew is yasar. It's the word that's used in the Genesis account when God formed man. It's most often a word that's used by the potter. God took Adam, or he made Adam, Adam, out of the Adama, the earth. God formed us. We are simply a jar of clay. That's why God said, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. The jar of clay is contrasted with that gilded box. Most of us would think we would keep a, a treasure, our, our coins, our, our wealth, our certificates of deposit, our watches, our chains, our jewelry. We keep them in a gilded box. But the problem with gilded boxes is that their shine can distract from the glory of that which is kept in the gilded box. So God said, I'm going to take my glory and I'm not going to put it in a gilded box. I'm going to put it in a bunch of jars of clay so that when people see what comes out of that jar of clay, they're going to know it's not the jar of clay. It's the glory and the beauty that comes out of that jar of clay. The excellence that emerges is clearly from God and not from us. Paul was being criticized for his appearance. His point is, I'm not too worried about my appearance. I'm not too worried that my body is weak and frail because I'm only a jar of clay. And God wants it that way so that whatever is accomplished in my life is clearly of God and it is not of me. Brian Wilkerson in his book, Unbreakable, says we have a sterling silver tea set at home that a family member gave us as a reminder of her love for us. It's quite old and it's beautifully made and it sits on stand in our dining room. There's only one problem, we can't use it. Before she gave it to us, she had it chemically coated so that it wouldn't tarnish. Hot water will ruin the finish. He goes on to say, God is not looking for sterling silver tea sets. He's looking for rough and tumble clay pots, the kind that can be used every day. He's looking for the kind of pots that don't need to be tucked away in a china closet, but can be sent out into a crash bang world, carrying with them the life of Christ. Church was never meant to be a china cabinet where precious pieces could 
be safely stowed out of harm's way. The church was meant to be a working kitchen where well-worn pots are filled again and again to dispense their life-giving contents to a thirsty world. How many want to be a jar of clay that the glory of God comes out of? It won't be you. Nobody will see you. They'll see the glory of the treasure that is in this jar of clay. Number two, four points in 14 more minutes. How many are feeling better about this? Number two, the sufferings we experience in our earthly bodies serve to reveal God's faithfulness and our full identification with Christ and his cross. This is stuff we're just not taught enough. We ought to be taught this all the time. I apologize for not teaching it more because this is where the rubber meets the road. Look at what Paul says. We are hard pressed on every side. We're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life is working in you. Paul here describes his suffering with four present tense ongoing participles. First of all, he says, we are being, it's, it's ongoing, we are being hard-pressed. It's the Greek word he uses most often when he's talking about his suffering. So it likely means any kind of suffering. We're being hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. We're being perplexed. That word means to be baffled, being at loss as to why things are happening. How many have ever said, man, I don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening. And that's what Paul said. We're being hard-pressed. Sometimes we're even perplexed, but um, we're not in utter despair, even though we're perplexed. Thirdly, we are persecuted, but we're not forsaken or abandoned. And we're being struck down. That is a boxing word means knocked down. We're hit with such force that you are laid to the ground. We are struck down but we're not destroyed or terminated. We're not finished off. Paul says all this is happening to us. We are hard pressed, we're perplexed, we're persecuted and we're struck down, but we're not crushed, we're not in utter despair, we're not forsaken and we are not destroyed. This is what Paul experienced in his physical body. This suffering was the means by which he carried with him. Every time Paul's suffering was carried around, he was carrying with him the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. He said, I'm always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in my body. Here's what Paul is saying. Let me make it real simple. When people see me beaten down, when people see me frail, when people see me weak, and yet they hear out of me the glory of the gospel and the power of the resurrection, I am witnessing to them both of the death of Jesus because I'm sharing in his sufferings, but also the life that comes in the resurrection of Christ. This death, resurrection of Christ is the means by which Paul perseveres. I am crushed, but I am not abandoned. I am perplexed but I am not in utter despair. He lived the resurrection life of Jesus. The death and resurrection are more, listen, look at me, they are more than just Holy Week remembrances. The church just talks about the death and resurrection during Holy Week. 
We come to Holy Week, and on Good Friday, we have communion. We celebrate the cross, and on Sunday, we're excited because we get him out of the tomb, and we go 51 weeks of the year talking about all the other stuff, but we are to live our lives as people who have died with Christ and are already living a resurrection life. Say amen if you believe that. That's what Paul was saying. When I walk around here and I don't quit, even though I'm beaten down, I am declaring both the death and the life of Jesus. Unless we die, we cannot live spiritually. We cannot live powerfully. It is participating in the sufferings of Jesus. This is Paul's testimony. They saw Christ crucified in Paul. Look at Galatians chapter three. You ever wonder what this verse meant? Paul said, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It means to, who's caused you to become cross-eyed? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. What's Paul talking about there? They didn't see Golgotha, the Galatians didn't. Paul said, you've seen in my life, you've seen in my life that Jesus Christ was crucified because I share in his sufferings. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 6, 17. From now on, let no one trouble me for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The Galatians saw that he lived a crucified life. And Paul prayed that. Look in Philippians 3.10. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul's sufferings from which he kept being delivered. The rods, being stoned, being beaten, being left for dead, being shipwrecked, being flogged. That picture of death and resurrection because he continued to get up and say, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus. Romans 8, 17 says, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Paul's sufferings, he said, were Christ's death at work in me. And they brought life to the Corinthians. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, According to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound for the glory of God. We're just going to leave that up there and I want to walk through this real quickly. Paul is quoting here, by the way, see where it says, I believed and therefore I spoke. He's quoting a psalm. He's quoting Psalm 116. In Psalm 116, the psalmist is beaten down. He is depressed. He is discouraged. He is low and he is sighed out to God. But he kind of comes to his senses and he says, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And in that same psalm is the verse that says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Incredible theology. Paul is quoting the psalmist. He said, I have believed and therefore I have spoken. I have the same faith as a psalmist. Though I am beaten down, though I am weary, though I might even die, I trust that God will raise. He raised the Lord Jesus and he is going to raise me as well. Paul's confidence and hope is that believers, I love this, Listen, I'm going to say it slowly. I wrote this and I like it. Okay, I'm going to say it really slowly. Paul's confidence and hope 
is that believers are just one step behind Jesus, who is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul, his hope was that the, the Corinthians would understand you're just a step behind Jesus. He died and was resurrected, and you're just a step behind him. If he raised the Lord Jesus, who is the first fruits of those who have slept, he is going to raise you as well. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, that which is sown in weakness is raised in power. That which is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Death loses its sting, and the grave loses its victory. How many are thankful for that this morning? And Paul said, I'm buried in my body, the death of the Lord Jesus, but you're watching resurrection happen as well. And his sufferings and God's faithfulness were for the Corinthians' sake and supremely for the glory of God. Let me give you the last three points in six minutes, okay? I'm not doing very well. The sufferings we experience in our earthly bodies are overcome when we set our sights higher. Look at this, therefore we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is only for a moment, is working for us. It's working for us. Do you hear that? Our light and momentary affliction is working for us. I'm so tired of Christians that think you have to rebuke every affliction. It is working for you. Why would you rebuke away something that is working for you? It is working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't look at the things which are seen because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul refused. Paul refused to give up or to lose hope because of outward suffering. Because outward suffering was giving way to inner renewal. You see, 2 Corinthians maps this. Inward renewal begins when we are born again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. In 2 Corinthians 3, we behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, and we are transformed from glory to glory into that same image. So when we're born again, we become like Christ, but there's still some work to do. And so we spend our lives beholding the glory of the Lord and we're being changed from glory to glory. That's why John though says, no matter how much you got changed, and listen, my dad was a godly man and he loved Jesus with all of his heart. But if he were here today, he would tell you there were still some things that needed worked out in his life. And he was being changed from glory to glory when he became a Christian at age seven. He became a new creature in Christ, and from age seven to age 85, he was being changed from glory to glory. But 1 John 3 says, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. So a little after midnight on Wednesday morning, whatever still needed to be worked out in dad's life was worked out instantaneously because he was made like unto Jesus. You understand why this is good news, all right? This is the gospel we preach. We're complete when we see him. Paul refused to give up or lose hope because his present sufferings were working for him a longing for eternal glory. And Paul refused to give up or lose hope because his sights were set not on the temporary, but on the eternal. The reason Christians throw up their hands and quit is because they're focusing on the temporary instead of the eternal. You don't lose hope when you're looking at those things which you can't see, those things which are eternal. 
I love this little line, outward glamour or glory was not the true test of apostleship for Paul, nor is it the true test of discipleship for us. The true test is inward transformation. It's not what we look like. It's not what we feel like. It's what Jesus is doing in our lives. How many believe that? Say amen if you believe that. Let me give you the fourth point, and I'll have you stand on the fifth one. Just give me a second. The groaning of our earthly bodies is a precursor to final redemption. Look at what Paul says in the first five verses of chapter five. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So Paul used the metaphor of a tent to describe the earthly body. It was, chapter four was a jar of clay, and now it's a tent. Remember the tabernacle? The tabernacle preceded the temple because the tabernacle was temporary. The temple was permanent. The tent is temporary because there is a new body that we will receive. And it is for that new body, Paul says, we're in this earthly tent, but in this, for that new body, we are groaning. Paul's critics said, you are too weak to be an apostle. Look at your hands. They're all gnarled. You, you know, Paul said, he said, he had people write his letters for him. And a couple of them, he said, I'm writing this in my own handwriting, which has led most scholars to believe that he couldn't write. Think about it. If he'd been beaten and stoned so many times, what do you do when stones are thrown at you? You put your hands up to hide your face. Think how many times his fingers and knuckles had been broken. He looked awful. He was a puny guy. He had been beaten. He was, there was nothing about him that was impressive. And they said, you cannot be an apostle. And Paul said, what you don't understand is this earthly tent means nothing. I am groaning for a new house that's not made with human hands. Paul said, this is just a tent, but I'm looking forward to that new body. People say today that the weak, the sick, the suffering lack faith or they're not spiritual enough. Paul would take issue with that. The body, look at me, was never intended to last. It is a tent that will give way to a new home, not made with human hands, and it is eternal. Will somebody say amen if you believe that this morning? Let me talk about the groaning real quickly. I, 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 think, I think we're going to make this a three-part sermon. Part one, first service. Part two, second service. And I'll just put part, part three in the funeral service tomorrow. How about that? All right. The groaning of Israel led to their redemption from Egypt. God responds to groaning. Remember this? Exodus 2, they are slaves. Happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And he remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham. Folks, there is groaning that's present in this earthly body. Those of us who are post 50, maybe post 40, I don't remember when I started groaning getting out of bed, but I, <laughs> is there not some groaning that goes on with that? And the closer we get to passing, there's groaning. There's groaning that's present all creation. It's subject to futility groans. We know the whole creation groans and labors. 
believers grown, same chapter. Not only that, we also have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And the Spirit groans to aid us and intercede for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray. The Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You've all been around people in their final moments of passing. There's some groaning that goes with that. But groaning precedes redemption. And God, just as he responded to Israel's groaning with redemption, responds to ours with redemption. The groaning will one day give way to redemption of the body and death will be swallowed up in life. Paul David Tripp said this, I love this quote, our world is not a very good amusement park. No, it's a broken place, groaning for redemption. I love this. Here is meant to make us long for forever. Here is meant to prepare us for eternity. Would you stand and I'll give you the final point this morning. The confidence we can have must be balanced by the responsibility we must assume in our earthly bodies. Here's what Paul says, final words of our text. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased. Rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Therefore, we will make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we have confidence. We have confidence in this body that a greater communion awaits us. We have confidence that as long as we're in this body, we're separated from the Lord. But that same confidence says as long as soon as we leave this body, we are present with the Lord. So we have great confidence. But right now we have to walk by faith, knowing that the best is yet to come. Confident that when we leave this earthly body, we are in the presence of Jesus. We have confidence, but we also have responsibility. While we're still in our bodies, our responsibility is to please Him. For one day, everyone in this room, our lives will be evaluated by Jesus based on what we did while we were in these bodies. That's what the text says. This whole text, I told you, was held together by the earthly body. We're going we're to lose this earthly body someday, this tent, going to get a new body and then we're going to be judged based on how we did in pleasing the Lord while still in these earthly bodies. Paul Barnett sums it up. The confidence we have while real. Flip that next screen up there if you would, Megan. I guess we don't have it on the screen. I'm sorry. Listen, the confidence we have while real does not empty service of sobriety. Just because we have confidence does not mean that we do not have responsibility. So look at me for just a moment. This life can be hard. Suffering of all kinds will come. Sickness, loss, disappointment, pain, failure. Things that don't make sense. Things that perplex us. They all came to Paul. And his critics tried to make him think that he was less spiritual. He couldn't be an apostle. Happens to us as well. Life in between times. In between the time that this earthly body is deteriorating and a new body comes, we are living in between times 
But Paul says, this just proves that God's at work. I have this treasure in this beat up jar of clay. It's part and parcel of the resurrection life. I have to die before I can rise. We overcome by setting our sights higher, not looking at the things which are seen. And our groaning is not a sign of a lack of faith. It is a precursor to our redemption. And we can have confidence, but we also bear responsibility. So if you heard this sermon today, you are still in the game. It may be hard, but you're still in the game and you are living in between the lines. And I love this prayer, Blaise Pascal, or Pascal. He uh, only lived to be 39 years of age. He was a Frenchman born in 1623. He was a mathematician and a scientist, but he also was a Christian writer. And I love this prayer. I ask you neither for health nor for sickness, for life nor for death. But I ask that you dispose of my health and my sickness, my life and my death for your glory. You alone, Lord, know what is expedient for me. You are the sovereign master. Do with me according to your will. Give to me or take away from me. Only conform my will to yours. I know but one thing, Lord, that is, it's good to follow you and bad to offend you. Apart from that, I know not what is good or bad in anything. I know not which is most profitable to me, health or sickness, wealth or poverty, nor anything else in the world. That discernment is beyond the power of men or angels. And it's hidden among the secrets of your providence, which I adore, but I don't seek to fathom. Some place in our lives, we have to say, God, I am a jar of clay fit for your use. Fill me as I surrender my life to you completely with your love and your power so that the excellency of the glory of Jesus that shines out of me is not from me, but it's from you. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the hope that you give us as we live in between the lines, the hope that one day you're turning this thing around. Until that day, may we say, Lord, use my life, whether good or bad, use it for your glory and conform my life to your will. I pray in Jesus' name. With your head still bowed for just a moment. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, never surrendered your life to him. You say, Pastor Kevin, today I want to do that. I want to give my life to him. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you today, would you slip up a hand right where you're at? Anyone in this room, anyone in this place, say, pray for me. I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Anyone in this place this morning, anyone in this room, let me ask a second question. How many would say, Pastor, I'm still in the game. I'm in between the lines and there's some groaning going on in my life. But I want my prayer to be, Lord, you know what's good and bad for me. You know what's expedient for me. I'm going to trust you. Conform my will to yours. And whatever comes my way, let your glory be seen in me in that situation. How many would pray that prayer with me all over the place? Let's worship him as we close this morning.